Hey guys, welcome to episode 148 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope that you're all doing all right and you're ready for another episode. And again, we want to say thank you so much for your reviews, reaching out to us on social media, or joining Patreon. And if you joined Patreon since our last episode released, we're going to be thanking you personally at the end of the episode. So see, that was nice, short, painless self-promotion. That was good. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to give you what you all want. John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Absolutely. Before we get started in today's episode of the podcast, I just want to provide you with a trigger warning. The case we will be discussing today involves crimes against children. So if that's something that you can't listen to, then we just wanted to let you know beforehand. And of course, as we get into the more dramatic parts, um, I will be giving you another warning. So a crime against a child is a crime against the community, a tear in the social fabric that we have worked so hard to weave. Over the years, we have unfortunately covered many cases that involve children. Two common themes in those cases is the utter devastation felt by the family and the rallying of the community around them. But this case is very different. There is no child reported missing, no search parties, no desperate pleas made in front of the media, just a small group of detectives holding out hope that they would find whoever hurt the poor baby that had been found in their jurisdiction. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On July 23, 1991, everyone was abuzz in the United States about the crimes that were being reported out of Milwaukee. Just the day before, an unassuming man in his early 30s had been arrested for crimes that settled at the very depth of depravity, Jeffrey Dahmer. So as news stories of what crime scene texts pulled out of the Oxford apartment complex, it was all anyone could talk about. And that had been the discussion taking place between two construction workers who had been walking down the Henry Hudson Parkway. The men had been laying out cones for the work that was going to be completed that day. And that was when one of them noticed a horrid smell coming from the area just right off the highway. Initially, it was thought to have been a dead animal or something that someone driving by had just discarded, left to fester in the sweltering sun. But still, the men went to investigate because they'd have to be working in the area. And if they were going to have to do that, they wanted to get rid of this smell. The two men climbed over the guardrail, which was up to their hip, and they walked down the embankment. Now, I know when you think New York City, you think concrete jungle, but that's not always the case. There are hidden gems all over the city, um, and a lot of highways have greenery on the side of them. And that was the case where these men were here. So let me set the scene for you. And John, I think this will really help you because you're very familiar with the city because you work there every single day. Yes. And I'm actually kind of excited for you to describe it. Let's see what you can get right. I know. It's I'm just kidding. That, that was a joke, but I am excited to hear it. Okay. So <laughs> from what I can gather here, the men were located in upper Manhattan in the Washington Heights area. 
And that's almost as high as you can get in the southbound lane of the Henry Hudson Parkway near the Dykeman Street exit. So that's between two very large parks in the city, Fort Tryon Park and the Inwood Hill Park. So down the embankment of either side of the highway in this area, there's a lot of greenery because you're in the middle of two parks. Right. And what's and what's interesting, too, is the way it flows through, um, You it also is parallel to like a waterfront. Right, because you're going down the west side of Manhattan. Yeah. So it's like you could see everybody on boats out there. Like people actually have a good time, I, I feel like, over there. I don't know. It's always populated with boats and like people just like not fishing. No, don't fish in <laughs> um, the Hudson. But they're definitely on their boats. They're like trying shit out. So it's pretty cool. The whole way down, you could take it and it see that. It seems like a nice highway. Um, well. In the upper part. Put it put it this way. Yeah. The fact that they're doing construction on it in 1991, they're probably still doing it now in 2023 oh, because it's just yes. constant maintenance all the time. But the thing is, we say maintenance to like upkeep, right? They do it like as a Band-Aid. Very different. Okay. It's it's ridiculous. That's why there's always potholes and like... Well, the infrastructure of the city terrible. needs to be totally yeah. reworked. But because it's so highly populated, you can't work on the infrastructure. So... Yeah. If I'm not mistaken... One day a bridge is going to go down, guys. Yeah. For anybody that doesn't live in New York or tri-state area, just know this. My father was on a job once. I'm not going to say the name or the company because I don't know. I don't want to get nobody in trouble. But he was on a job once where they pretty much told him, hey, listen, this is our budget. And we're just going to repair the bridge for like fi- like constantly band-aid a bridge for 15 years. And wh- whatever it is, it is. Like it, instead of just trying to like repair like, m- hey, massive sections. Yeah, they were just like, we're just going to keep a crew here and just stay here for 15 years. That's terrifying. And it's just like, why? Yeah. Right? It's so stupid. Well, they have to because if you shut a bridge down, imagine the traffic. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to do that. They Think about it. You have to build pretty much another bridge next to the bridge in order to have a way for people to get across while you're doing work on the bridge. Correct. Or shut down lanes. It's complicated. But anyway, that's just my construction brain going off. All right. Well, that was nice. Now yeah. we're educated on that. <laughs> so if you were to, like, see this area where our victims going to be found you would never like if i were to just show a picture of the highway which i'm going to do it's going to be the main picture of this episode and of course i'll post pictures as well but you wouldn't think okay this is new york city because truly on both sides of the highway the guardrails are really high up to your hip and then the embankments go down both sides but it looks like there's forests on both sides of the highway the higher you get at the top there's actually like i don't want to call it a cliff but I don't know what you really call it. Like, it is like a ravine kind of, yeah. but it's at very high elevation and it actually comes down. It slopes down as you're going down. Well, that's exactly what yeah. was happening here. So now you have these men um, going down a pretty steep embankment. And it's just past, if you're familiar with the area, the the Dykeman Street Viaduct. So that's where they're, they're finding or they're dealing with this smell. So when the men began to walk, it was clear that the source of the smell was coming from a blue cooler that had been nestled between two bushes. It was something that they had never smelled before, and it prompted one of the men to check it out. He was nervous about what it could be, so he apprehensively approaches the cooler. And at first he was distracted because he kind of just like flipped the top open and that caused the cooler to topple. 
And what toppled out first was a whole bunch of Coke cans. But then his eyes were drawn to something else. It was a black garbage bag, but it had kind of broken apart. And what he saw inside was the body of a small child. He thought like an infant. That's That's really sad. Yeah. So the men rush up the embankment and to the nearest payphone to call the NYPD and to tell them that Wisconsin wasn't the only state that had a monster on their hands. Crime scene technicians and homicide detectives from the 34th precinct were called to the scene. They arrived just minutes after the 2.30 phone call was made by the men who discovered the body. They, like the poor construction workers, will never be able to get that scene out of their heads. The child had been stuffed inside a cooler. She was white or Hispanic, three to five years old. Both of her wrists and feet had been bound and her body folded in half. Even as seasoned homicide detectives with the NYPD, they'd never seen anything so horrible. In interviews, the detectives had said that the discovery was traumatizing and that the first thing that went through their head was what kind of soulless monster would have killed and discarded a little girl this way? Because it was it was a horrific scene. Initially, the construction workers had described the child as an infant in the 911 call. But upon further examination, the child was much older than that, but was just small for her age because, without a doubt, she had been malnourished. The detectives believed that the first step of the investigation would be the easiest, identifying the child. The city, unfortunately, had a very large database of missing children. And in 1991, New York State, so that includes the city and the state of New York, had 25,975 children reported missing. That's a pretty staggering number. I don't know what it would be today, but that is pretty crazy. It's pretty nuts. And if she had gone missing the year before, there would have been 27,000 to go through. That's insane. I do like that you clarified, though, the city and the state. Because a lot of people forget that it's New York is more than just the five boroughs, you know? But that is crazy. Yeah, there's a huge like state up there. That's what New York politics become very difficult because you have the mo- the majority of your population within the city area. So New York State doesn't always feel represented amongst their that. voting yeah. population. So the issue, and I just want to clarify with the statistics because I don't want to mislead you with statistics. I know that sounds like a lot of kids and it is a lot of kids, but of the 25,000 basically 26,000 missing children, 22,000 of them were um, children who ran away and came back. Okay. And then I'm sure you also have to figure out, uh, figure in... Like familial, like custodial correct, issues. Correct, exactly. People who like, maybe mothers or fathers that took the kid and, you know, now they're kidnapping the kid. Of or... stranger abductions or abductions from people, even if it's abductions from people the family knew, it's still technically not a familial abduction i would say that accounted for about like 1200 which is small in comparison to the regardless it's still horrible uh, (laughs) all of it terrible um but that's why and i think it gives us insight we always get frustrated with detectives when we're like oh they they're wrongly assuming this kid ran away but i mean when you look at the statistics that's why that's their first assumption because statistically that is what happens it's kind of it puts everyone i think with their back up against the wall 
because what do you, what are you supposed to do? You know, if you're on if you're the parents, it's hard on their end because they're frantically looking for their ch- uh, child. The cops are trying to do their job, but have limited resources and limited information to follow through. Exactly, it's hard. And I think it's easier in like a small town area that the police have the time and the resources to look into missing children's cases. Whereas in the cities, it's a little hard because every detective or police force is stretched very thin because of the population that they're serving. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if like each detective in a, in a precinct has like 50 to 60 cases on their on their desk. Yeah, I'm sure they have a lot or going more. on. <laughs> yeah. So they thought this was going to be easy, that they would just put in the description of this child and a missing child would pop up and that would help them then later with their investigation. And it was while the police were kind of plugging the description in of this child into their database that they get back the autopsy report. Okay. And the autopsy report is very graphic. And so if this is something that you don't want to hear about, I would fast forward about a minute. But the body of the child was found in a large dark blue igloo cooler with a white top. The body had been enclosed in a black garbage bag that had been wrapped in masking tape. The small naked body of the child had been badly decomposed and was folded in half at the waist. Rope had been tied to keep her wrists and feet together, and another piece of rope was wrapped around where her neck met her legs because she was folded in half. The rope went around her neck and around her calves so to keep her in the folded position within the cooler. Based on examination of her bones and teeth, she was determined to be about four years old. It was also determined that she was of Hispanic descent. The four-year-old girl would have stood at three feet and two inches. She was severely malnourished, weighing only 25 pounds, which is the recommended weight for a child that's about to turn two years old. The medical examiner made it clear that although what this poor child had gone through in her last days was horrific, she'd been abused and neglected for a long time prior. Her eventual cause of death was determined to be asphyxia through suffocation. The swabs that had been taken of her genital areas tested positive for semen, specifically her anal cavity. She had been raped and smothered. The detectives were disgusted. And whenever we cover crimes against children, and I think this is really understandable, there's always that extra bit of rage when it comes to the investigation. And that's clearly what was present here, because children are our innocent population. And to be able to hurt a child like this means that you are a different kind of monster that needs to be taken off the streets because you're going to do this again. I was just about to say that. That is 100% the truth. If they've done it here, they're going to do it again. Exactly. Now, we also have to see now if there's going to be a trend in, like, if we could find out where she came from, then we can maybe see if this person is looking in specific areas where he knows he can get away with it. Is he kind of, you know, combing the area and looking for easy targets, like maybe someone from a foster system or something like that? I don't know. It's like because this is a malnourished child, right? Like I don't know. I, you know, I hate to say this, but maybe like in a poorer neighborhood where like these, you know, maybe that could be the case. It's easy to get kids like that in a bad, you know, in a, in a poor area all the time. Yeah, like maybe they're out playing or something. So like 
That's another thing. They're monsters. So they're going to look to see the easiest way to get those kind of children. They're not going to go in a, a really rich area where they, they might be noticed. They're going to go somewhere where they can blend right. in better. And that's what we saw in another case that we covered from New York City, the Charlie Chapoff case. Yes. And we saw the same thing where one predator was victimizing children from the poor neighborhoods because he knew that that's not where any of the focus of detectives was going to be on. Right. You blend in better. Right. Well, I think you bring up a good point, And that's what detectives thought, too. The first thing that they need to do is identify their victim because then it's going to be easy to go from there. But what they thought was going to be the easiest part of their investigation quickly became their hardest task. The detectives canvassed the area surrounding the parkway, apartment buildings and places of business to see if anyone had been familiar with a young Hispanic girl in the area between the ages of three to five or a family that had a child that matched the description from three to five because she didn't match any of the missing children's reports in the database. I think we could limit like because if you're a foster parent and your foster child goes missing, let's say you're they're going to report that. Yes. It's going to happen, especially if, like, you're having uh, people from the state going to look and see, hey, how's the kid going? So, like, you could rule that out. So then the only other thing I could think of right now, early on in this case, is are we dealing with maybe a family that has a lot of children? It would, ma- it would make sense if the kid is, like, three or four years old. Maybe there's multiple siblings and something happened here. But maybe it's from a large family. That's well, a possibility. That would make sense because if the girl did go missing and wasn't reported missing, it would make sense that the family was involved in some capacity or else they would have reported her missing. Right. So I think maybe that's something we have to look into. It could be from a larger family and they're not going to report a child missing because then it would implicate them in, uh, with a, without a reason of a doubt. Right. And that's what detectives were kind of leaning towards. But they didn't receive any help from the people who lived in the area or the businesses in the area. They really couldn't help them. Um, You know, the problem with a heavily populated area is that you see so many people. And a lot of the people that you see may not even be from the area. So because, you know, New York City is a very big tourist destination. Whether you're in upper Manhattan or lower Manhattan, you do get people visiting from outside the area all the time. So nobody could really help them. The detectives even used the Crime Stoppers program to help get information out of the community. They were looking for information and possible witnesses. The Crime Stopper vans would drive around the districts covered by the 34th Precinct, from 150th Street to 217th. The vans were essentially traveling billboards that spread information about the murdered girl. They also had megaphones that were on a loop that were giving out information in both English and Spanish describing the girl and asking for assistance. But no information ever came in. Now, I don't believe it was because the people didn't want to help, you know? And I think sometimes New York City gets this, like, bad rap of, like, well, we're just not paying attention when something bad happens. But this is different because it involves a child. And honestly, there's truly nothing that... uh people that live in New York City like to rally around than to kind of catch what they feel is a murderer in their community. And like a great example of that is Son of Sam. When that 
summer, the people of New York City just went wild. And something similar is going to happen here. People were really up in arms about what happened to this little girl. And they really wanted to help. And I do appreciate because a lot of times we see people give false information or false tips. They didn't do that here. And and that helps the investigation because then police aren't following false leads. It is disappointing and disheartening to not get any leads whatsoever but at least they weren't going down rabbit holes that led them nowhere yeah no i agree with you and and you bring up a great point i think that i feel like everyone would say this about where they live but i truly believe new yorkers are just different like they'll take action <laughs> when it's go- when something's going against the town of the area that they live in it's yeah. unbelievable and like in in groups not just like one person like they will scope out an area everyone will like make sure they're looking at night and and you know it's crazy yeah the community was really up in arms about this crime because they felt like and it's true what kind of monster would do this to a yeah. child it's almost like and the, they, they could do it to our children yeah it's almost like the whole entire area becomes this night watch what do you call that uh uh crime na- watch. yeah like yeah. Neighborhood, neighborhood watch, watch. <laughs> it's like it's so true Except it's like people from New York. <laughs> yeah, and then you have like the old, like the old, old school Italian like grandmothers with their with their like curl things in their hair with like flashlights and stuff. That's funny. Like when I, I remember growing up in the city when we were playing like you know manhunter running around and stuff. You always had the little the old grandmas like peering through the window. Like what's curtain, going on? Like, out what's here? going on out there? <laughs> you know, like they were always very much involved, and they like to make sure that everything was copacetic. They looked out for each yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> So not being able to find out who the child was gave them their first clue. Usually parents are the ones who come to them with missing children. And a missing child meeting her description couldn't be found in any database, especially not the one for missing or exploited children. And because that was not happening in this case, it led them to the conclusion that most likely there is no family coming forward because either... Their victim was kidnapped elsewhere from far away and brought into the city. So that's a potential. Or a family member or someone close to the family is the one who committed the crime. And the family is trying to cover this up. I mean, those are two really good instances that could be the the cause for this, for sure. Yeah. And nonetheless, either way, it was very upsetting for the detectives of the 34th Precinct Homicide Division that this poor girl was going unclaimed. Like, not only did she suffer so much in her death, but nobody's claiming her as theirs. And that really, it hurt them. It bothered them. I mean, how could it not? She was thrown away like trash. Right, exactly. And they wanted to give her a name. So they took it upon themselves to name her. They didn't want her being referred to just as the victim or Jane Doe. So they projected their feelings about what they wanted And basically the only thing that they had left and what they would need in order to have the resolve to investigate the case. So they named her Baby Hope. That's really cute. Yeah. And at this point, hope was all they had. And they did have a lot of it that they would be able to finally get justice for her. When all the searching and reaching out to the community still did not work, the detectives had to think bigger. The body of this little girl had been found on the Henry Hudson Parkway, which is quite expansive, something that led to one of the theories that maybe Baby Hope was from somewhere else. 
It travels the entire length of the west side of the island of Manhattan, begins all the way downtown, and it ends at the Henry Hudson Bridge, which would allow someone to either enter or exit the island. So the person that disposed of the body could essentially be from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that is true, actually, because then you can you can also get on the GW as well. You and could just be, leave. You could be living in Fort Lee. You could be living in other places within Jersey. You could be in Connecticut. You could be in Connecticut. In the Bronx. Yeah, you could be in the Bronx. So the detectives believed that it was time that they reach out to the media to help them with the identification of this girl because they believed the search had to leave Manhattan. The detectives held media conferences and spoke to reporters from the tri-state area to get Baby Hope's story out there. Because they were not able to show them a picture, most definitely not able to show them what she had looked like when they found her because her body had been badly decomposed. They had a sketch artist work with an anthropologist to kind of look at her bone structure and from there go on what her face would look like. So... They produced a sketch of what they believed the four-year-old to look like. And this was a very emotional part of the case. It was emotional for the community because a face was put behind this victim, this poor girl. And it, it does make you so empathetic. And the detectives, it was heartbreaking for them to see what this girl looked like, you know? No, I do. I mean, imagine not only do you give this poor girl a name, but you also make a sketch, a full face sketch of that mm. poor girl. I mean, like what else? I mean, now you're, you're giving so much life and meaning to that, to that person that now it's like you want so badly to find out what happened to her, but there's a lot of emotionality in that now. Exactly. Cause think of all the missing children's cases, like the big ones, the John Bonet Ramsey's, the Madeline McCann's. There's always that one picture, you know, like, the child unfortunately gets immortalized in this one picture. So you could always think of like everyone thinks of that one John Bonet Ramsey picture, that one Madeline McCann picture. You're right. And now they have that for Baby Hope. And although it's just a sketch, it still creates a lot of empathy, which then allows the case to gain traction, which is good because now that they have traction and empathy and heartbreak, it generates a big response from the tri-state area, and they do start getting leads. And like I said before, leads, they're good and they're bad. Um, when they lead you in the right direction, that's wonderful. But when it's wasting resources, it's not necessarily the best. And detectives in this case, they got a lot of leads, a lot of leads that led them nowhere. But there were two really big leads that I want to talk about that really helped this case move along or were events that the detectives really thought they were getting somewhere. So I'm going to go over the two really big leads that came from all of the media conferences and, and the press releases. So most of the leads that were investigated were determined to be other children or families. But these two, they went somewhere. First, there was a woman who came forward and said that on Sunday, July 21st, now, remember, the body had been found on Tuesday, the 23rd. So this is days before the body was found. She said that she and her husband had been driving southbound on the Henry Hudson, and they saw a man and a woman carrying a blue cooler down the embankment on the side of the road. 
The best description that she could give was that they were a well-dressed Hispanic couple. And she remembered it because the scene struck her as odd. Where would they be going with this cooler and where was their car? She didn't see one parked on the very busy and pretty dangerous highway. So it's like what they had walked somewhere with a cooler and they were bringing it down an embankment. So she just remembered that. And then when she read about this case in the newspaper, she was like, oh, wow, I think I saw that. Okay. I mean, that's a good, then technically you might have an eyewitness to what happened if that was true. the true. Yeah. So this witness seemed legit to detectives. Her story stayed the same. She didn't ask for a reward of any kind. She seemed like she just wanted to help them. She was also being pretty honest about not really being able to describe the couple with the cooler. And it would make sense that she would remember this because it was something that struck her as odd. And detectives wondered, you know, was this were, were these two people the parents of baby Hope? I mean, I guess there is a possibility. I just want to also point out, though, and I'm not saying that this is always the case, but listen, if you've traveled there enough, you kind of get an idea of what happens in the city. If you ask a lot of, especially old timers, they'll tell you that one of the hustles that people do out there is they load ice into a cooler with drinks of, you know, an assortment of drinks, water bottles on hot days during the summer. Oh, I didn't and even think of And they sell that. that on the side. You know, most people don't bite for it, but they hand out dollar bottles of water, dollar this, dollar that. And periodically throughout the day, they reload the cooler and give out drinks. I didn't think of that. You're it's right. It's a hustle. It's a city hustle. So somebody who lives in the city would know that, that that's what people do. Interesting. So it might be a little odd for someone who's not in the city enough or maybe don't know that. But yeah, that happens. That happens on every uh, in That's multiple corners. That's true. I remember seeing that now when we would drive to your mom's yes, house. Yes, and usually it happens when you're coming off or on to a highway. So it would make sense that they were going down an embankment because maybe it was taking them right. down an exit. Exactly, and they're not in a car because they're hustling with selling drinks. Yeah, most likely they don't have a car. So, well, and a lot of people that live in the city yeah. don't have cars. Oh, that's also true. But I'm just saying that that so that could be a possibility. I don't want to write it off, but I want people who aren't from okay. here to kind of know that that takes place. No, that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. So detectives were thinking, okay, maybe this could be their her family, or could it be a predatory couple? Something that the detectives had on their minds but hoped wasn't true. But the problem with this lead, like you said, that's a really good explanation as to what it could have been. They also didn't have anything else. So the lead kind of was helpful. They thought it was a step in the right direction. Could have very possibly been Baby Hope's body being left off on the side of the road. But there was nothing they could do with this lead because where were they going to go with it? Right. I mean, there's no there's no more to go on. So you kind of just have to take it for face value and move on. Yeah, that's what they did. They just hope they're like, okay, this is a piece of the puzzle. Hopefully we can fit it in later once we get more information. Right. Then there was another lead, and I'm not going to share names of the people involved in this lead because the victim in this situation prefers to stay anonymous. Okay. There was a photo development store in New Jersey. Of course, this is New Jersey. And that store places a call into the hotline that was created for Baby Hope. 
because they had been developing photos for an older gentleman. And in those photos, a child was seen. The images were graphic in nature and depicted the sexual exploitation and assault of a child. A child that very much resembled the sketch of Baby Hope. Oh my God. Yeah. So they called their local police department and they also got in touch with the hotline because they thought this baby resembled Baby Hope, this child. And they wanted to do this because they knew it would kind of take a long time for the bureaucratic stuff to get into that direction and contact the NYPD. So they figured they would just call both places at once. I mean, that's smart. Yes. But it also helpful. Yeah. And it also kind of connects things because it now it could be a possibility that this kid is from Jersey and that person that has those pictures being developed is going to come back to grab those. Yes. So this is a perfect opportunity to kind of make them feel like, you know, don't worry, we didn't see nothing. We just developed your pictures. And then the moment that person comes in, they're waiting for him. Exactly. So this is actually a very good tip if it goes, uh, hopefully it goes somewhere. So the detectives worked in conjunction with the police in New Jersey and went to the house of the man that they had the address for because when he went to go have his photos developed, you do have to fill out a profile for the oh, place. okay. So they had the man's address. Oh, better, that's even better. I know. Don't even wait for him to come in. Just go right to his Let's house. Go to him. <laughs> All right, cool. So when the man was confronted about the pictures that had been taken, he did admit to having taken those photographs but he said that the the child in those pictures could not have been baby hope because it was his granddaughter okay well that's still um horrific horrific and disgusting yeah he was watching his granddaughter and those were the pictures that were taken so the next step was that the fam the family was told about this the detectives broke the news to them after they, of course, arrested the man. I mean, that's, that's disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting, but I'm glad at least we got that taken care of because that's just another weirdo off the street. Correct. And it was good that, you know, the both they acted pretty quickly and then now they knew they could take that off their list, but they were also able to take another predator off the Absolutely. street. Absolutely. Yeah. And besides that one lead and the other crime that was found out, there was really nothing else that help the detectives in solving this crime or no one that came forward to do so or any clues that could be found. So detectives continued to work the case, refusing to let it go. But by July of 1993, so two years into the investigation, they knew that they had to come to terms with the fact that they may never find out who Baby Hope was. They wanted to honor her, to lay her to rest with dignity. So all the detectives from the 34th precinct pooled together their money and paid for the funeral services for the girl and a beautiful black granite headstone. That's really nice. Yes. And on the headstone, they engraved the 34th squad detective's badge, the name Baby Hope, the date she had been found, and the words, because we care. That's really touching. Yeah. You know, because at that point, it's like it's more than just an investigation to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's above the call of duty. Like, I know they didn't solve it, but to go out of your way to do that collectively yeah, they... kind of just speaks volumes to how much of how much it waned on them and how much it was so real for them. You know, she became a part of their family. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And because they felt so bad that no, they're like, nobody wants to claim this girl. 
And that broke their hearts. Yeah, that's the least they could do, right? And that is where the case remained for 16 years. Wow, 16 years? Yes. The Baby Hope mystery was something that was really big in this city. And it's something that we're more unfamiliar with because you were born in 1991. I know, I'm a baby. Yeah. Yeah, but no, you're right. I, I actually... Yeah, because I was born in October. Yeah. Yes. And July 21st, that's your dad's birthday. It is. When this yeah, happened. Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. So over, I have to remember John's parents' birthdays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so over the decade and a half, there had been many advancements made in science. And in particular, in New York, they had to come up with these advancements in science because... The coroner's offices post 9-11 had to develop new techniques to help identify the remains of a person just based solely on their bones because of the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Yeah, trying to identify people. Correct. They're still doing that till today. I know. So they had made strides in being able to identify people based on their bones. Like getting profiles from their bones and then matching it with um, anyone who had a missing loved one from the September 11th attacks uh, gave in a DNA sample so they could be matched. Matched, yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. Sad, but good. It's yes. any kind of advancement to like find uh, you know find a way to like unlock these mysteries. It's a good thing and give closure to families. Absolutely. And that led the detectives in the 34th precinct to think, okay, this could help us with our cold cases, especially the case of Baby Hope. So, of course, there's new detectives working this case because the original ones who had been investigating had retired. So there's kind of this new force that has taken on this case now. So the proper paperwork had been filed to exhume the body of Baby Hope. Okay. This task... Um, as were most in this case, proved to be difficult because once they exhumed her body, there wasn't a lot of bone material left because it had been like 18 years at this point. Yeah, so it's kind of what I guess like just the DNA that you can grab from it deteriorates? Is that uh, well, the it? bones deteriorate. Oh, just the bones, okay. But luckily, they were able to develop a DNA profile of baby hope, which is good because this is like. The first good thing that happened to them in this case. It's unfortunate that, like, it took 16 years, but... Well, 18. Oh, 18. Sorry. Yeah, because it took two years for them to say, like, okay, we're going to bury the body, and then 16 years until the exhumation. But, uh, I mean, it's good, though, because it's an advancement in technology, so hopefully we get some really good clues here. So the first thing they did with the DNA profile was that they ran it through the missing persons database in hopes that there would be a match. Because now at this point, because now at this point, 18 years later, when your child is missing for a significant amount of time, they have the parents do, like put their DNA into the system. So if a body of a child is found, they match it. That's really good. Yes. But there was no match. Ah, oh, damn. All right. And all hope was not lost, though, because they had the profile and they thought this is really going to help with the future of the case. Yes. I have a quick question, though. Um, obviously they have the sample now from the bones, but were they able to like safely keep, or, like, or, or did they even get a semen sample from what they found? Yes. 
So were they able to hold on to that? Um, I don't know if the semen sample had deteriorated. Okay. I don't know how it was stored. Okay, because you know what I was thinking? The same way that they, I mean, at this point, we're talking about, you know, recent years. So I'm thinking if they were able to get a bone, pro- like the from DNA from the bones, could they have maybe put that semen sample through CODIS? True. Or or see if, because they, they did highly suspect the fact that the family was involved. Could they try to match a DNA profile with the profile from the semen sample? Right. Um, the semen sample must have been deteriorated over time. See, I feel like that clue would have been way better. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Because it really only would have mattered if they were ever in prison or they ever were caught doing something else that were bad. But Well, they could still test it against suspects. That's true. So because the semen sample was never referred to again in this trial or this case, I would imagine that it maybe deteriorated. Just, yeah, maybe it did. Yeah. yeah. So what was done in this case, as happens in other cases, was that every year on the anniversary, I guess you could call it. I always find it weird calling things the anniversaries of crimes. It's always weird to me. Um But they would reprint the missing posters and they would have media outlets cover the story July of every year because that's when the body was found. So it would take another five years for them to get another lead. On the 22nd anniversary of the discovery of the body of Baby Hope in 2013, a tip came in through Crime Stoppers. A woman claimed that she had heard about the case on the news just recently, and it reminded her of a wild conversation that she had overheard a few years earlier in a laundromat. All right. She'd heard a young woman talking to a friend about how she had had a little sister and that her little sister had vanished, but she believed that she had been murdered. She said that her sister had told her that she saw their other sister in a plastic bag in the refrigerator, but then was later moved to a cooler. Get the hell out of here. No. I mean, this is pretty deep conversation for a laundromat. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, it's not usually something. I mean, yeah, we're not talking about bodies in refrigerators, but wow. Oh, my God. Okay. Right. So when they met the woman, they determined that she was telling the truth. Because at first they were like, really? Well, it sounds far-fetched. It does. Um, She said she never forgot the conversation because it had been so disturbing. True. You can't forget that. So they got the address of the laundromat from her and the detectives went there. And they're doing all of this on a whim because they're like, "Eh, we don't really know if it's going to go anywhere, but let's kind of follow through because we got nothing else at this point. This conversation had happened years prior. So they're thinking that there's no way that the owner of this laundromat is going to be able to help them. Because not only is it like a weird lead, it happened years ago. That's true. But you also have to think in, in in a lot of neighborhoods in the city, regardless of what borough you're in, there's so many laundromats. But those laundromats are used by the same people for so long. Right. Because you go to the one by your house. Yeah, exactly. So you have to carry your stuff. Right. And sometimes they, they provide, you know, the whole washing your you know they'll do everything for you and fold it and put it in a bag so you get to like there's more of a social interaction there so you never know if an owner might know somebody somebody more than just hi how are you that's true you know what i mean it's true well the owner of the laundromat did remember the girl okay when asked about the girl in the conversation and you know 
The woman who said she overheard the conversation gave a general description of the girl who had been talking. He knew right away who they were talking about. All right. His niece, Lorena. Really? Yep. Now, her full name is Laurencita Ramirez. And at the time, she was 27 years old. He knew because of the conversation, not the description. He told him that he knew his niece would be very open to speaking with them and sharing her story of what she believed happened to her sister. Wow. Hmm? All right. This is good. This is going somewhere. Yes, it is. So the detectives then went to the Brooklyn address that her uncle gave them in Sunset Park where she lived with her husband. And it all seemed too good to be true. So they were a little apprehensive. But when Lorena opened the door, there was no doubt in their mind that this woman was related to Baby Hope because she was the spitting image of the sketch. That's actually kind of creepy. They said it was so eerie. Yeah. She opened the door and they were like, oh my God, this is what Baby Hope would look like grown up. Right now, yeah. Wild. That is insane. So the detectives let her know that they were investigating a cold case from the 34th precinct. And they had heard that she was talking about a missing sister and they shared with her the sketch. And she was very emotional when she saw that picture. I couldn't imagine the, the, the amount of feelings going through you. Yeah. Because that's your that's your sister. Right. She was like, it's true. Like, in her mind was going through, I've always kind of been told this by my family, but I didn't know because this girl was two years old in 1991. Okay. So she would not have the memory or the knowledge of what was really happening in her family at the time. So it's her older sisters that kind of have a better memory. And detectives were really confused by this because they're like, well, what's happening here? And they ask her to explain. Lorena shared with them what she knew. She said that when she was young, she had lived in the Bronx with her parents, who were Mexican immigrants that were in the United States illegally. At one point, her parents divorced, and she was separated from some of her siblings, meaning that her father took some siblings and her mother took the others. When they were reunited, she was nine years old. So... I mean, we're talking about six, six and a half, seven years after the family had been separated. Okay. When she met her sister, Maribel, for the first time, that was kind of like the first time she met her because at two years old, she didn't remember her. Right. Okay. So she meets her sister, Maribel, who at the time was 11. And she told her, we had another sister. I don't remember her name, but I know something bad happened to her. That's crazy. Yeah. So pretty much they were split and then one disappeared with air quotes. Mm-hmm. And then when they reconvened, they were like... Something happened yeah. to somebody. Okay. But we were just so young. They don't remember. Yeah. And they kind of swept that maybe under the rug. The parents. Yes. Well, we'll get into it. Okay. So she told the detectives that she wanted to do anything that she could to help. She would give them a DNA sample right then and there. But detectives explained to her that it wasn't that easy. In order to determine if the profile sample was a match, they would need for it to be compared with the sample of a biological parent, not a sibling. Really? I thought they would be able to do that. Well, I guess because the DNA profiles could vary so much from sibling to sibling 
that it wouldn't be like as strong of a match as it would be from parent to to child. Maybe it, see I have questions about that though because maybe that's just how it was in 2013 and maybe now it's gotten so good that it doesn't matter because I mean people are finding like relation like um that people are related like as as a second cousin even. Or yes. first cousin. So I'm, I'm sure they yeah, made a lot of advancements. Yeah. But even from like a legal standpoint, I think they probably wanted to find the mother so she could answer questions. Yeah, and I think maybe by getting the parent, it's like a surefire way Correct. that this they are related and we're on yeah, the right track. Yeah, it's like track. a 99% chance I guess, of a match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, as helpful as she's being, she doesn't have the answers. That's true. So they're like, where's your parents? <laughs> where's your parents? We need where, to talk. Where are they? Yeah. So... Um, she, of course, gives them the address of her mother. She said she doesn't know where her father is, but her mother lives in Queens. Her name is Margarita Castillo, and she gave them the address. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Yes. So the detectives went to Queens. I'm sure they're like, oh, my God, we found it. Like, I can't believe we're we're getting somewhere. We're headed to the, my stopping grounds. Yes, Queens. I'm not Let's really sure what I think, um, like the Astoria area Oh, okay. is what we're talking about. Not too far. Not too far. No. So they talked to Margarita and it made sense why Lorena didn't have more answers for them because Margarita didn't want to talk to them about baby Hope at all. She flat out refused and was evasive about any of the answers that they could even try to squeak out of her. But they didn't want to leave without a DNA sample. And this, I'm not sure how they did it, and I'm not sure how legal this is, but they used a ruse to get her to lick an envelope. Okay, I mean, that happens, I guess. I mean, like, that's kind of like the same thing by, like, waiting... Uh, for hey, garbage. Waiting for garbage, or, hey, would you like something to drink? And then, you know, they take it from whatever you were drinking. Like, what I'm thinking is that, like, maybe they said, like, hey, if you don't want to talk about us, just formally write it down in a statement and put it in an envelope. I don't know how. Maybe, yeah. They were able to do that, but they did, or they maybe took an envelope from her. I don't know. But a rush was put on the sample to try and determine what was going on. And days later, it came back as a match. Uh, Yeah, of course it did. Can I just – I need to tell you something, though. Mm -hmm. Like, I know this might sound a little – messed up but i'm i think the the worst part about this is you find the family you have pinpointed the family you have done your due diligence you have gone through multiple people to get down to the mother now and then the mother doesn't want to speak and is not forthcoming at all and i think that that is the most disrespectful yeah that is almost as were as bad as the person who who killed this child almost yeah because you know something and you are not speaking uh, on it. Who are you protecting? Why are you protecting him? Let's get into Because it. I think that the, the father actually had to have something to do with this. So why are you protecting him and why aren't – this is your child. Because, like, put everything else to the side here. You know, I think every mother will understand what I'm saying here. I mean, you had a child. The, the, the most sacred of connections possible. Okay? And you are not going to do the right thing? I agree with you. So, like, every parent out there right now, you know that this is ridiculous. Well, I think that's why the detectives went to the steps that they did. And maybe it wasn't 100% right thing to do to kind of, like, take that DNA sample. But I think they were pissed off. They were like, are you kidding me? You're not going to talk exactly. to us about this? I mean, listen, I know they it could be maybe a little wrong the way they did it. But like you just said, though, 
I mean, come on. What are you doing? Yeah. It's taken 18 plus years to figure this out. And here we are. And you're not going to do anything. You're not going to say a word. I think I think you're <laughs> that right. frustrates me. Right. <laughs> that really makes me bad. Spicy job. Yeah, that's spicy job. <laughs> I I that's because it's ridiculous. It is because the sister was forthcoming. The the uh, the uncle, right? The uncle was yeah, forthcoming. Yeah, he was like, let's figure this out. Everyone else is, and now you, the mother is not. Like, what? What are we missing here? Uh, we're gonna get into it because I think there's a reason for the apprehension a little okay. bit. But I do agree that I don't think there should be. Okay. When it comes to this and that happening to your child. Yeah. I feel like everything goes out out the window when it comes to who hurt your child this way. Yeah. She must have known there was a massive manhunt happening. Listen, I can understand if like maybe this this husband was abusive and you and you were in a very bad situation and you didn't want any and maybe you didn't want to have him hurt you or your other children or there there are some circumstances that you wouldn't say anything within that moment. But it's obvious that she's not with him right now right and if if anything you should have been able to when you were asked about it years and years later if he's not in the picture controlling you or 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 threatening your life or anything like that then i don't see the reason why you wouldn't yeah i can understand if you are an illegal immigrant you don't want to you don't want anything to happen to you and your family i also get that you don't want to be hurt yourself maybe your husband is violent right but outside of that years removed from that i don't understand that i agree with you i think that's i think that's important i just want to make yeah i just want to make sure that i do emphasize that there are circumstances where you could be in in the moment you wouldn't say something right that and also you are illegal so i get that but yeah that's crazy wow anyway that's my hot take that was well. It's good because I think it's going to lead into this conversation quite well because okay. I think you articulated that very nicely. I tried. Good job. So detectives went back to Margarita's apartment where she lived with her current husband and four of her, including Baby Hope, ten children. Wow! So she has ten children. But I was right. You were right. There was a lot of children. They told her that they tested the DNA and that she was a match for the missing girl. The girl that had been found in 1991, and they showed her a sketch. Ooh. Okay. She had to have seen the sketch. I mean, this was all over the city. And I even asked your dad about this. Like, oh, do you remember this happening? And he remembers it happening. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so that means people were paying. People yeah, if my, knew if about it. If my dad was paying attention. If your attention, dad was paying yeah, attention. Uh, dad, if you're out there listening, if you were paying attention, I'm sure everybody knew about it. Yes. So... <laughs> That's when she she looks at the sketch in a very emotional moment and says, that's Angelica. So now we got a name. And it took 22 years, but baby Hope finally got a name. Wow. Margarita finally agrees to talk to the detectives at this point and tell her side of what had taken place back in 1991. She said that in the 1980s, her and her husband... Her first husband, Gennaro Ramirez, came to the United States illegally. And at the time, they had four children. They went through a very nasty split breakup, and he took two of the children with him, Angelica and Maribel. And he went to go live with his sister-in-law, Belvina Ramirez, at her home in Astoria. Now, his brother was still in Mexico, 
but his wife was in the United States and his brother was trying to get into the United States. Okay. So that's why he's living with his sister-in-law, but his brother's not present in the house. Got it. Okay. And that's in Astoria. Once he left, he refused to let Margarita see or talk to Angelica or Maribel. He had always been very abusive with her and the children. She had wanted to leave him, and this, I suppose, was the punishment for doing so. He took two of her kids. That's really sad. Yeah. Okay. So Margarita would beg at the door for her children, but he would either beat her for doing so, like she would be pounding at the door, or he would tell her, if you don't go away, I'm going to hurt the kids. Yeah. See, so that's it. kind of... That's kind of what I thought. Like, I get, like, there must be some sort of circumstances that would make this... In the moment. In the moment. That would kind of make this this way. But also, another thing that we have... We don't know how, what it's like, but imagine being this woman, whether you're a male or female, it doesn't matter. But in this case, her, her kids are being taken away from her. It's not like she can go... To the police. To the police or do anything because she's illegal. It, she felt powerless. Right. Like that's, that is a true powerless situation to be in. Yeah. Because you have an abuser, your kids are being taken away from you, and there's no one that you could go to or do anything. She was truly desperate. That's, that is insane. And we have no idea what that's like, but oh my God. Right. And she knew that if she were to go to the police, that both her and her husband would be arrested and her kids would be put into the foster care system. Yeah. That is true. So she did feel powerless in it. And she was just thinking, okay, the best thing I can do is stay away so he doesn't hurt them. And what other option is there? There was the none. Moment. Yeah. And then to try and get her kids back in any way she could, maybe to get them, to take them. She she had nothing. She was probably also trying to do the waiting game where maybe if they got a little older, they would make their way back to their mom maybe. They're still right. very young. Yeah, yeah. Because we're talking about a four-year-old. Angelica was four and Maribel was five. So years later, six years to be exact, like you said, she did the waiting game, and Gennaro chose to return to Mexico and allowed Maribel to return to her mother. She only got one child back. That's, this whole thing is so crazy. Oh my God. Okay. She never found out what truly happened, but Margarita, I think for her mental health, chose to believe that Angelica didn't nothing bad happened like in her mind she convinced herself that angelica went back to mexico with her father despite the stories that she heard on the news and despite the fact that maribel told her um that living with her father for all of those years was was torture she said she always tried to go look for her like she would ask Gennaro's family Where are they? Where is he in Mexico? And they would always kind of say like, oh, he's here. He's there. Whenever she would try to reach out to people anywhere, they nothing would come back to her. Like they were all like kind of false leads. So it seemed like the family was covering up for him. Meanwhile, Maribel saying like me and my sister, we were tortured. We were tied to the table. um, So we wouldn't go into the refrigerator and we wouldn't do anything they didn't want us to do. We were beaten. And she says that she saw her sister's body be put in the refrigerator and then moved into a cooler. 
but she was so young that it was kind of like a fragmented memory and she doesn't remember too much. And I'm sure she's also repressed a lot of that as well. I'm sure the whole time she's lived there. I mean, because that's not that is not something that is easy to do, mind you. You're putting this body in a, in in the in the in the refrigerator like this is you can't undo that. You uh, no matter what age I think, I think that you could if you, you see that, that's something that just that's sticks with you. with you. Yeah. Wow. So the detectives wanted to get answers from Gennaro. So they contacted the police in Mexico in the town that the couple had originally come from. But they couldn't find him. The detectives actually searched extensively for him in partnership with the authorities in Mexico, but they were never able to find him because Mexico does have extradition with the United States, but they could not find him anywhere. So either he had died or he had changed his name, which is easier to do in Mexico than it is in the United States. It's also possible that he could have left Mexico even and went further down. True, true. Um, But they did have more success with the apartment that the two young girls had been taken to. At the time that Gennaro had kidnapped his two daughters, he went to go live with his sister-in-law in in Astoria and anyone else who may have been there because uh, it was kind of, I don't want to say a transient home, but there was a lot of relatives that would stay there sporadically. And that's who they wanted to question next, right? Anyone that knew about or participated in the treatment of those girls. They wanted to know what happened. Yeah. What about the brother that was still in Mexico and his wife is still in Astoria? They couldn't they couldn't find him. They couldn't find him either? No. So he never came back he never came to the States. No. But the but the wife stayed in obviously stayed in the United okay. States. Yes. Well maybe they ran off together. Maybe the two brothers left. The wife maybe they did. Maybe they did. Like, I'm just saying, like, uh, especially, like, nowadays, like, Panama City is, like, a big place where, like, people go. It's a hot, you know, it's a hot place. It's it's growing in popularity. This is the, you know, so I wouldn't, I don't think it's uh, out of the realm of possibility that you would travel to a bigger city where you can make a life for yourself in Panama. You could do any of uh, those know, things. Go, There's a could, lot of places yeah, you could I mean, go to. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. So the next thing the detectives do is they look into the records of people that lived in the apartment or had ever used that apartment as their address, right? And they cannot question Belvina because she had died. The, she, the, the wife? The, the, yes, the sister-in-law. The sister-in-law, the, yeah. Okay. She died of a stroke. Oh, all so, right. So there's one name while they look at people in the records that was blaring out at them. During the time of the murder, Belvina's brother, Conrado Juarez, who was 30, would oftentimes stay at his sister's house in Queens because it had been closer to where he worked than where he lived in the Bronx. So Juarez was a bad man. He had a very long rap sheet that included charges of assaults and sexual assaults. Oh, He was most definitely someone that the detectives wanted to interview. So on October 12th, 2013, Juarez was tracked down to an Italian restaurant in Greenwich Village, where he worked as a dishwasher. He was taken to the 34th precinct, where he was interrogated with the assistance of a translator. The um, interrogation took two and a half hours. That's like an interrogation that I, I would have actually loved to watch. Yeah, it was just intense. because it's isn't it weird, though? Like, OK, if there's a cop in there, 
uh, you know, the detective that's trying to interrogate, and then you have a translator in there. Like, the amount of, like, I don't know. It takes away the intensity. Yes, I was going to say that. Like, it does take away from the intensity. But I also think... Now, the translator that they had worked with the NYPD. Okay. So they didn't have to worry about anything being misinterpreted. Okay, good. Or, yeah. Like, the aggression was still there to a certain degree, and the pressure was still on. It's also so long ago that I'm willing mm-hmm. if he, I'm wondering if he would take the whole, I don't remember, it's been so long kind of uh, route, you know? Well, well, let me explain what he says. Okay. <laughs> so at first, he denied knowing what happened completely. He said he had no clue. He didn't even know who the girls were uh, when he stayed there. They hadn't been there. Then his story changed that his sister had been the one who committed the murder. Then his story changed and said that his sister had called him and said, the girl fell down the stairs, help me move the body. So he's saying he only helped move the body. And then they're putting pressure on him. And what I think probably prompted him into his full confession was the fact that they said a semen was found during the autopsy. Okay. And then he's like, okay, you can't lie and say she fell down the stairs because you don't fall down the stairs and now you have a semen sample and a four-year-old child. Right, right. Like, that's not what happens. So he told them what he did. And this is graphic as well. So... Um, fast forward maybe a minute, two minutes, if you don't want to hear this. He said that one day he was drunk and he had asked four-year-old Angelica to come into the bedroom with him. There, he began to rape her. and She began to scream. So to stop her from screaming, he placed a pillow over her head as he continued to rape her. He realized um, afterwards that she had died, that he had suffocated her. He panicked and asked his sister to help him dispose of the body. He said that she had been mad at him, but she helped him, and that they wrapped the body in a plastic garbage bag, and they held it in a refrigerator until they then transferred it to a cooler the next day, and they put cans of soda on top of the body to hide what was inside. Hold on. Where's the father, though, at this point? I don't know. He doesn't mention where the father was. I think the father was in and out and was just leaving the kids there. There, I'll get into like how okay. they were treated the yeah, whole I'm time. Just, I mean, these are just questions that I have. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. Yes. We all have a lot of questions. So then on Sunday, July 21st, they carried the body to where they had left it. Okay. Um. So that first tip was right. Yeah, The woman was. did see them. Yeah. He admitted that the girls, the whole time they were at the house, were mistreated. And even in the years after, Maribel was horrifically treated in the house. Um, and I don't think this is a one-time thing that happened. I don't think so either. Gennaro had taken them out of spite because he didn't really want them. He just wanted to hurt his ex-wife. The children were not allowed to eat. They were only given some food or leftovers, and they just learned to stay out of everyone's way. More happened in that house, and I feel very badly for Maribel, and of course badly for Angelica, for what happened. How could a father ever allow that? 
but I think it's because he was also an abusive man as well. Right. Like, I don't think he was ever a father to I them. mean, I think that this is a house of horrors, and these kids had to what deal they, with it, all of this. And it wasn't just from their parent. It was from everyone else, everyone in, the else in the house. Yeah. It's like these kids were the punching bags. Unbelievable. Juarez was arrested for second-degree murder, and they would have charged his sister, but she had died of a stroke in 1995. They would have also charged Angelica's father, but he still couldn't be found. Okay. And that, you know, that they didn't have to answer for their crimes, but I hope that they feel. I don't think the father feels bad. No, I don't think so either. The city had their answer. The retired detective who had first worked the case and the one who had organized for the money to be collected and the tombstone and the funeral and all of that Um, Jerry Gregorio was present at the news conference when the NYPD police commissioner Ray Kelly announced that they had finally found out who baby hope was and they had caught her killer. It's nice that he was still like there and involved. He was a very old man and he was like, I'm just happy we have closure and that she can be laid to rest with her actual name on her tombstone and justice. Yeah. Margarita did not want to be present or comment. She told reporters through the door of her apartment that they could never know her pain. And I think that that's true. I think, like we kind of talked about, very complicated. This woman was hopeless and helpless in the situation that she was in. I do think in the years afterwards, she could have been more helpful and Supportive also of her daughter, Maribel. Get justice for her and everything that she went through. And as the years went on, New York City and the laws that they have when it comes to illegal immigrants reporting crimes is that they kind of, they're not going to necessarily do anything like they would have done in 1991. Though I do understand the fear. Like, well. Yeah, the fear is totally present. It's present. Right. I I don't understand, but I I could. It's hard. The kids could have (laughs) reported it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of people here could have kind of stood up way earlier. But it's a complicated. But it is complicated. The fear is very present. So it's just. Well, look. It's very complicated. Even though we have the full story, I still. There's a part of me that still feels like something could have been done because you want justice for your daughter. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, you still want that. Like, so, I agree. I, you know, and I understand it might be painful, but like you didn't. Ju- it wasn't just you that lost your daughter. It was all of your other children yes. that lost their sister. Yeah. You know, and that is so sad and to, like, to know that. And, and to think about what your other daughter went through. Yeah. Um, very complicated. She did say, in addition to, you don't know the pain that I've been through. She thanked people that have prayed for her daughter over the years. I think that just shows it like she did know. Yeah, I think so. There's, I think there's a couple of things that we still won't know a hundred percent, especially like where no. the father is. Um, but there's a lot of questions that are not answered in this case. I mean, it's a really good case, but it's really sad. Very, This is a very sad case. Wow. Lorena, who had been two years old when her sister was murdered, had no memories of her. She knows now that she would have had a sister who was two years older than her and looked exactly like her. 
she would have had a twin. Yeah. And in an interview that she and her husband gave, they were very angry. And they were like, how could anyone ever treat a child that way? And they had an understanding that she would have never had prior because at the time they had a child that was four years old. Okay. And they go, how could you ever hurt a kid yeah. like this? How could you? Yeah. I mean, well. I think you don't know how innocent a child is at a specific age until you have a child that that's that age. And that's why we always see like a lot of victims come forward when they have children because it, it really does hit something with inside you. Because you see them. You're yeah. like, oh, my God, four years old. Look how small you are. And innocent. Yeah. And how, like, naive and that they're, chi- they're children, you know? Like, yeah. you know, it's just so different. So I think it just hits it hits different when you have your own at the same age that someone else was murdered, you know, or, or went missing. It always right. triggers something there. Um, I am glad that we touched on everything. Because I think it's important to like put it out there, but also there were so many other little circumstances within it. This is a very complicated yeah. case because you can't yeah. imagine how that woman must have felt begging at the door of her ex-husband, knowing she can't call the police. There's a whole family on the other side that's not going to let you get through and get to your kids. Yeah, exactly. What do you do? What do you do? Because then you have two other kids to protect at home too. Yep. Now, I know there's another question you guys may have. How did someone not report this that lived next to these children? You mean in that house of horrors? Yeah. Yeah. That's in a good question. Complex. Yeah. Because as much as we could say, like, okay, New York City rallied around what happened to this girl. Well, where was New York City when she was being abused with her sister tied to a table? I don't know if the children ever left the house, so I don't know what they heard and or saw. But I will tell you that it is absolutely disgusting and horrible, the amount of cases that I've researched. And, you know, because I look around for cases, too, of just people looking the other way when children are being abused in you know places what? and not reporting. Yeah. I, you know, that that's a very good point. You're right. As as much as people in New York City rally and everyone's there for each other in these crazy moments of need, there. but the day-in and day-out procedures are pretty much, oh, I see someone in the street, I'll just drive around them. Oh, he fell on the floor, eh, it doesn't matter, go around them. Yes. Like that. It's so sad. It, it's it's a doggy-dog world down there, but it's because of somehow, some sometimes the living situations are not ideal. You know, a lot of families being fractured. The poverty levels are pretty mm-hmm. insane sometimes. There's a lot going on. You know, when you go to some of these apartment buildings, you truly don't understand what we're talking about unless you've seen it or you've lived it. And then sometimes police don't even really want to go inside. They definitely do not want to. So, yeah. you know, it, it's it's not a place where you want to be. So, like, we could sit here and say, how did no one do that? It's because they got their own crap that they're dealing with in their apartment. Right. They, you and know, and they, they don't want to call, and the, they don't, yeah. call the police because now that puts a target on their back in the area. It puts them under a spotlight. Yeah. they Everyone like that wants to go under the radar. So by, by saying, and hey, they, I think something's going on over here. And they probably live in a community where there's other illegal immigrants who aren't 100%, going to call the police. 100%. And like, like I said, I'm not talking badly about that. I'm just saying they're not going to want that publicity. They want to stay low. I get it. I get it. Well, the trial of Conrado Juarez was scheduled to begin in March of 2019. Now, I know that's crazy because it's six years after he was caught. Yeah. 
Well, it had been delayed because there was a lot happening regarding the trial, um, especially legally when it came to who was to testify. And that was because four days after his arrest, Juarez sat down with the New York Times reporter Francis Robles. The Manhattan District Attorney wanted Robles to testify during the trial. And this led to a long series of delays and challenges based on, like, sourcing and reporters and what they're able, like, if they're ever going to be called to testify if someone wants to give them information. Like, it became very complicated. And eventually what happened was the judge agreed that the reporter must testify as to what she had been told during the interview. During that time, Juarez had to be moved from Rikers Island to the Rockland County Correctional Facility for his own safety because it seemed the inmates were getting some revenge for Angelica Castillo. Well, let's also not forget how bad Rikers Island is. I mean, it is beyond, uh, it is below average um, in the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, they're shutting down Rikers Island. I I, I'm pretty sure they are. Yeah. It's it's really bad there. I mean, there, there were some points where there's like there's like eight people to like a little baby cell. I know it's, it's crazy over there. Good conditions, so no. they're like they're not keeping him separate from general population, which <laughs> no. means he's getting he's getting yeah. it. In March, Juarez's defense team planned to argue that the confession was coerced. And that the first story he had told police was true, that his sister had called him to say Angelica fell down the stairs and died in the process and that he only helped dispose of her body. That, of course, was easily going to be dispelled by the prosecution in simply saying that the autopsy report stated that she died from asphyxia and that she had semen in her body. So that doesn't happen when you fall down the stairs. No, it doesn't. But you know what they could have done um, initially? That, that I'm just thinking about right now is they didn't have the DNA uh, technology to figure it out, like, who it was, but they could have found out whether or not that person was a secretor or not, and it might have ruled out him. That's true. Because if it, it, it you know, if it... Nothing is said about the semen sample, yeah. so I don't want to, like, assume what was done or not done or... I, I know. I just want to put it out, though. It was 1991, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think that they would have tried to... Well, because all I'm Preserve trying to say it. is if it... Oh, you know what I'm thinking? What's that? She was left in a cooler in the dog days of summer in the city. So it might not have been... The sample may have been, bad been even degraded. Back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they right. might not have been able to pull it, but they were probably able to determine it was semen. Yeah. So, yeah, the semen sample probably wasn't viable even when they found it back in 1991 to preserve it. Right. Um, But Juarez would never see the courtroom. In November of 2018, he died from complications related to pancreatic cancer at 57 years old. So nobody really answered truly, truly for the crimes. And people that were going to testify at trial stated that Juarez never felt bad about what he did. He told them that he only felt bad that he was caught. Right. So it just speaks to the monster that he was. And I think he probably did this more than once. You don't do that one time. I agree. So it seemed that maybe a different force stepped in and took both Juarez and his sister from this world early on purpose. 
As for Angelica's father, he still remains at large, but is wanted in Mexico. It's sad that they didn't get, like, it's not, re, it's not 100% justice because they couldn't. Get but him. then again, then again, the wars was in Rikers for a long time. He was. Not, you know, not as long as it, you know, he should have been, but. His last six years were bad. Yeah. So, you know what? Maybe that was a good thing. And I just, I am glad that Baby Hope has a name and that there was some finality within the case, but it is a very complicated one, like you said, when it comes to like culpability at various different levels involved. And you kind of get some questions answered as to why nobody claimed her as their own, because I think the mother felt, A, she couldn't come forward and B, she was in denial. That that was even her daughter. Yeah, looking back on this now, since we're at the end, there are a lot of roadblocks here and a lot of things that make it difficult. So it's just sad that this happened to this child and how everything let her down, like everyone let her down. So I feel really bad about that. Yeah. The only good thing that I'm happy about is that the the sister, the the, the uncle and the sister were very forthcoming. And that kind of helped us get to where we are. I agree. So, I mean, that's that's good at least. All right. And that kind of concludes our story of Baby Hope is so sad. It is sad. So sad. But, you know, her story has to be told. You know, you you almost got a tear to come out from me. Oh, wow. Did I? Because I always feel so bad. But normally the tears don't happen. You get teary. I always cry. Yeah, I, I almost. But I always feel it. I always feel so, like, bad and, like, I don't know. Yeah. But you almost had a tear come out. Ooh. Oof. It's baby hope. It's horrible. Yeah. So horrible. All right. Well, before we leave, we just want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. So we want to say thank you to Rachel Raymond, Sarah Story, Trisha Sherman, Brittany Based, Kathy Strobin, Michaela Harvey, Christine Wadley, Gail Williams, Susie Keller, Elena Appleton, Louisa upped her pledge, Courtney Wallace, April McDowell, Kelly Ratcliffe, Andrea Cook, Heather Hayes, Rachel McNulty, Farah Mbule, Kelly Giganti, Melanie Gray, Haley P, Jessica Daniela Garcia, Michaela Guider, Rachel Marie, Anna, Cassidy Fisher, Mary Hack, and Brooklyn Benedict. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.